Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher James Spiegel. You have someone like Richard Dawkins who's claiming that theists are delusional, but my thesis is Dawkins has it exactly backwards. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. James Spiegel is a professor of philosophy and religion at Taylor University in Indiana. He has written many books and professional articles, including The Making of an Atheist, How Immorality Leads to Unbelief. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Luke. Now, Jim, I could see how immorality could lead to atheism, just like immorality could lead to religion. For example, Someone might want to spend their life having promiscuous sex and eating lots of bacon, but they can't square that with the Jainism in which they were raised, so they become an atheist. Or someone could be a really violent person, and they would want to justify their violence by saying it's God's will and it's in the Quran, so they become a Muslim. I, I suppose that could happen in some cases, but that's not really the type of claim that you're making about atheism, right? No, that's right. My claim is that atheism is always precipitated by immorality of some kind, which gives rise to certain motives and desires that ultimately give rise to a willful rejection of God. Now, to be clear, that immorality need not always be visible, or what one might call especially severe, such as adultery or extreme promiscuity. Some forms of immorality are more subtle, such as hubris, uh, an abject pride, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, or some perverse desire for complete autonomy and rejection of all authority in one's life. How does that work? Because as far as I can tell, Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Jews and atheists, you know, there tend to be a lot of them that are immoral and a lot of them that are moral. So how does that work such that atheists have a particular type of sin that keeps them from accepting the lordship of Christ. Yeah, the basic assumption here that I'm making is that everybody has immorality in their life. Atheists, theists, agnostics, anybody from any particular religious tradition, we all have sinned to err as human. That means it's a universal issue. We all struggle with uh, immorality to some degree. Now, what differentiates us all with regard to belief in God or doubts about God has to do with how much our desires or immoral commitments and indulgences and these other non-rational factors skew our cognition or the way we think about religion and God. You know, I'm the first to admit that I'm a sinner, that uh, anybody from any religious tradition is a sinner. We're all guilty of various kinds of immorality. It's just that, you know, according to the thesis in my book, what I argue for is that atheism is the result of a certain suppression of what I regard, what the Apostle Paul regards as very clear evidence for God in creation that is suppressed by, in his word, wickedness. Okay, so help me be clear about this. How does wickedness lead to the suppression of clear evidence? Okay, well, there are a number of psychologists and other scholars, philosophers and so on, who've written on self-deception. I think that's involved in a key way. There are a number of different theories about self-deception. The one that I find most convincing is the view that self-deception involves a kind of irrational motivation that skews belief, kind of motivated irrationality. 
Alfred Melee and others have defended this model. And the idea is that, you know, we all have different desires and preferences, psychological dispositions that would prompt us to prefer certain truths over others. A person's self-deceived when that motivation to believe against the evidence prevails. So the person forms a belief that actually flies in the face of the evidence. And so a classic example of that would be, say, the mother or the father of the teenager who has been caught for the third time dealing drugs, and they want to believe the best about their kid. They say, well, once again, he or she has been caught at the wrong place at the wrong time because they're in bad company. They're not a drug dealer. It looks that way because of their associations, but actually they're innocent. Now, you could understand that maybe as being rational the first, perhaps the second time, but after the third or fourth bust, the evidence should be so strong in, in favor of their being guilty of this that it's a kind of motivated irrationality. I think this applies well and you know, when it comes to whole worldviews, and in, in this case, uh, belief about God or not. So when you apply that kind of model to what Paul's saying in Romans 1 or what Jesus says in certain places, it seems to me a pretty good fit. And then I consider my own experience. You know, Before I was a, a Christian, I lived a certain life that I liked to justify. I think I was self-deceived, but again, it's a good example of that. I, I, I tried to justify or rationalize the things I was doing in terms of a certain kind of agnosticism, which didn't come clear to me until not just after my conversion, but uh, a while after that, and I got a load of what the scriptures say to that kind of thing. So that's the general idea there. You know, I don't argue for that model of self-deception in my book in any detail, but you know, there's plenty of work out there by scholars like Melee and others that spell it out and unpack that model. So the theory is that atheism is always caused by some kind of immoral set of desires that leads them to resist or ignore the clear evidence for God's existence? Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's good. Now that we've got the theory clear, what are the scriptural or scientific motivations for thinking that that theory is true? Okay, starting with the scriptural justification for this model, there are a number of different passages. Uh, the one that I highlight from Paul in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, he says that the reality of God is clear to all so that no one has an excuse not to believe. He explains that the reason that some people don't believe is because they uh, quote, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Uh, also, Ephesians 4, uh, verses 17 through 19, Paul says that some people are darkened in their understanding because of the hardening of their hearts, which he connects to various immoral indulgences. And then you have uh, Jesus in John 3. He says that people reject him and the truth of God because, quote, their deeds are evil. In John 17, this would confirm the positive side of my thesis. Jesus says that if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God. I think that too points to the importance of the will and behavior when it comes to spiritual understanding. So there's a number of biblical passages, and then in terms of scientific justification, this whole subject isn't really you know, a scientific one in the sense of hard empirical science like physics, chemistry, or biology, but in the broader sense of science where one is concerned with hypothesis testing and confirmation, the evidence from my view lies in the realm of uh, psychology and history. So in terms of psychological research, there's studies out there which indicate that when people experience a conflict between belief and behavior, they're often inclined to change their beliefs rather than their behavior, which you know might sound counterintuitive, but the studies are there. 
That sounds pretty plausible, although that would apply just as much to religious belief as to atheistic belief. Yes, then that's a good point. This is a blade that could cut both ways. And then, uh, you know, I just talked about the psychology of self-deception, where a person believes something that flies in the face of evidence because they're motivated by a desire to do so. Yep, that sounds pretty plausible, too. Of course, it cuts both ways as well. Yeah, that's right. And then historical studies, which, you know, I'm no historian, so when I started reading some of these folks, it was pretty enlightening. And probably this is what suggested the thesis to my mind as much as anything, you know, besides that Roman ones passage. Anyway, historical studies of, of atheist scholars reveal significant non-rational factors connected with the paradigms that one chooses including atheism. So you have Paul Johnson's Intellectuals, somewhat of a controversial but fascinating book, where he looks at major thinkers during the modern period, people like Rousseau, Marx, Ibsen, Hemingway, Sartre. They were not only moral wrecks, but their vices impacted their scholarship in profound ways, which you know, strongly suggests that they were wanting to justify their personal vices with their scholarly ideas, paradigms. You got Paul Vitz's Faith of the Fatherless, which is sort of a psychological slash historical study. He looks at all the major atheists in the modern period, Hume, Voltaire, Nietzsche, Sartre, Camus, Russell, Freud, and others, how they each had this in common. They had severely broken father relationships, which he wants to argue a little more strongly than I would. That this is, it, He seems to suggest it's a necessary condition for atheism. I certainly wouldn't go that far. I'd say it's typical or it's a general trend, or in any case, a broken father relationship is something that would tempt one in the direction of agnosticism and atheism. Why would you say that? Because, I mean, there are billions of religious people who have broken relationships with their fathers, and I don't know of any study that connects broken relationships with fathers to atheism. I mean, is, is what you're going on here is the profiles of some famous atheists in history? Right. Again, to get clear on the thesis, it's not, even for Vitz, it's not that it's a sufficient condition for atheism yeah. because, I mean, I know plenty of believers that you know, have you know, fathers who are deceased or you know, bad relationships with their dad, but that it tempts one, well, this is my claim, that it, it's a kind of temptation in that direction or it would affect one psychologically to maybe dispose someone in that direction. I think he'd want to say that it's a, a necessary condition. <clears throat> that this would apply to all atheists, and, and that's where I say that's too strong. It's a temptation, it's a factor, and that those who are atheists, in many cases, that has figured in, and they've, you might say, succumbed to that temptation or that, that, that response. Well, so Jim, I, I know that this isn't your whole thesis, but let's just kind of, while we're on it, we'll focus in on the daddy issues sure. type thing. If you've said it, I've missed it. Is there evidence for this proposition that father issues would trend one towards non-belief? Oh, right. Well, Vitz's study seems to be the best I guess, historical evidence with regard to, you know, the major atheists. It's just curious that every one of them, I might be missing somebody, but you think about the major atheists in the modern period, and they all have broken father relationships. In many cases, their fathers died when these scholars were very young. It's a kind of peculiar or suggestive commonality they have. It is, at best, a kind of inductive argument that there's a causal connection. You know, certainly not all correlations suggest causal connections. So, you know, there's more work you have to do there to make the argument work. But I think from a Christian theological perspective, where you see the significance of the Father as a metaphor for God, think about the Trinity, God the Father, and then the Son and Holy Spirit, and how the family reflects that. So the image of God is all bound up in one's 
experience of one's earthly father. You consider all of that a sort of theological background, and then I think it makes Fitz's thesis a lot more plausible. But it is kind of an inductive argument, or you might say it's a hypothesis with a certain amount of explanatory power, and you make a kind of inference to the best explanation. Well, and talked about hypothesis testing. One thing that we would want in hypothesis testing is a more representative sample rather than an extremely non-random sample of very famous atheist academics in history. And then the other thing we might want is a control group of some sorts. I imagine that it wouldn't be difficult for somebody to pick out a particular selection of famous theists in history and find some kind of commonality and then say, oh, well, this is what caused their theism. Yeah, it'd be nice to have more psychological studies. I don't know if anybody's doing that. But in defense of Vitz, I don't think it's a random selection here. He has just looked at all of the major atheists in the modern period. Well, I'll give you an example of what a control group just off the top of my head could be. I think if you were to pick non-random sample of, say, the top 75 most influential Christians in the last 300 years, I think we would probably find that nearly all of them had parents who were Christians. And so we could say, aha, there's the cause of their Christianity. Or there could be other things as well. I mean, it could be proximity to a church, or their father was involved in the theological study, or whatever. There are all kinds of correlations that we could find, I think. And to imply a causal relationship there, I think, would be pretty weak. And also, it's a very non-representative sample. We're talking about particularly influential people rather than a random sample of theistic or atheistic populations. Yeah, I would like to see the sort of study you describe. I wonder what the results would be, whether when you take the most prominent theists, or if you want to say Christians, what percentage of them would have had believing parents. That'd be very interesting to me. I mean, your point's well taken. Vitz's is one study, and it's not without its flaws, but I think what it does is it launches a whole line of research that needs to be followed up upon to do more rigorous evaluation of that thesis. Again, I have, I'm not a psychologist, I don't know, you know what, if any, of that work is being done, but I'd, I'd certainly like to see it. Now, what do you say to me when I come to you and I say that my father and I, my father's a, still a pastor, and of course I left the faith several years ago, he and I still have a very strong and healthy relationship, and always have. So does that provide any kind of anecdotal disconfirmation for your thesis, or is your thesis not strong enough that that would provide disconfirmation? Right. It doesn't disconfirm or falsify my thesis, maybe Fitz's, but not mine, just because I think it's a general trend, but then I allow for exceptions in, in cases like yours. In fact, you know, I have several friends and acquaintances that are atheists, and I think some of them would be like you. If it is, as you say, and I, you know, I don't know you very well, but I, I take your word for it, then you would be an exception to that rule uh, for sure. Well, at this point, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that I'm not very persuaded by the points you've put up so far. Not? You're not? Oh, shucks. Oh, darn. But let's return to your larger thesis about immorality in general being connected in a causal way to unbelief. Is there more that you want to say about the scriptural and scientific motivations for thinking that that theory would be true? Yeah, another category of evidence that I discuss in the book comes from philosophy and history of science. Uh, you might be familiar with the work of Thomas Kuhn, physicist, 
uh, his historian of science who sure. wrote a landmark book in the early 60s on the structure of scientific revolutions, he notes, and it was very controversial at the time, that scientific paradigms are not the result of simple rational deliberation and accumulation of evidence, but rather they're typically selected because of non-rational psychological factors, or at least non-rational factors had a heavy influence on what paradigm a particular scientist defends. And he notes that because of this, when we look at the world, whether as scientists or as lay people, we have commitments that we think are completely rational or the result of data evaluation, when in fact, there are non-rational factors that are invisible to us and that cause a paradigm perhaps to hang on a lot longer than it should. And also, he notes that paradigms are incommensurable in the sense that they can't be compared by a single criterion or rational standard. And that's one of the reasons that there really have to be certain non-rational factors that enter in into paradigm selection. So when you look at atheism, theism, it's easy to apply Kuhn's ideas there. You know, if this is true of the hard sciences, chemistry, biology, physics, then how much more so when we're talking about philosophy of religion and faith issues, psychological factors will naturally figure in. There'll be desires, there'll be motives that are, are not just a matter of data and evidence, and the will is involved. And I think Kuhn, for all of the controversy, his ideas of one sway and I think it'd be hard to find philosophers of science today who wouldn't affirm at least certain key aspects of Kuhn's thesis. So I apply a bit of that to this issue, you know, trying to explain more, I suppose, what I call the obstinacy of atheism than the descent into it and why once one has an atheistic perspective, the world as they see it does seem to confirm their commitments. But that would be a likely story given Kuhn's thesis. And I admit the same about myself. I sometimes have students ask me, well, what would it take for you to give up your theism? And my answer is, I honestly cannot imagine a scenario <laughs> where I stop being a theist. Part of that's probably because of you know some things that Kuhn has made clear about the psychology of paradigm commitment, but also just because of the fact that there is a world, and I guess I'm convinced by certain forms of the cosmological argument that there is a universe there, nothing's going to change that, and that needs some sort of explanation. But even my appeal to evidence is there is clearly influenced by a paradigm I already hold. Sure. And then you got Michael Polanyi, who's, who basically argued the same sorts of things that Kuhn did with different categories and terminology, arguing that all theorizing, even in science, is ultimately personal. Scientists' personal desires often override the pure implications of the data. Mm -hmm. And that's true in other disciplines as well, and probably especially philosophy and religious studies. Does that about sum up the major pieces of evidence that you present in your book? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So my reaction to that is not counting the Paul Witz thing, which I just can't bring myself to call by the word evidence. Everything else is, first of all, pretty standard and not very controversial at all, and I would agree with most of it. And secondly, not applicable specifically to atheism, but to worldviews in general. So it's a pretty basic fact of sociology of religion that people make worldview decisions for non-rational reasons or irrational reasons almost all of the time. So that's a pretty uncontroversial fact, and I certainly accept that. But that's just yeah. as true of theistic worldviews as it is of atheistic worldviews. So what's the evidence that leads you to think that atheism in particular is a result of immorality? Uh, right. The psychological and historical and philosophical stuff is more or less an application to the 
it helps me to extend, I think, and as well as to apply the biblical model. It really does come back. It's a theological argument from Scripture, which naturally you, you don't regard the Old and New Testaments as divinely inspired. So there it is where our, our presuppositions or fundamental commitments would differ. I don't intend to argue in the book that atheism is false. I try to make clear that what I'm doing is giving an explanatory account of atheism that is inspired by those biblical passages and then applied and extended using the data outside of theology from history, psychology, and philosophy. Okay, so you're not making an argument that atheism is caused by immorality, therefore atheism is false. No, that would be <laughs> an ad hominem. Yeah, or a genetic fallacy. That species of ad hominem argument, yeah. Yep. So at this point, you know, we're, we're kind of at an impasse because you're making an argument from the Bible, and of course I would treat the Bible like I would treat every other piece of ancient literature as certainly not divinely inspired. But I wonder if the evidence that you presented and that I agree with about the way that people make worldview decisions in a non-rational way actually kind of cuts against the biblical passages that you cite in this particular way. Apostle Paul seems to indicate that theists are rational to believe because they respond to the evidence, but that atheists are not, whereas all of the scientific evidence that you just cited says that most people, theists and atheists, make worldview decisions primarily for non-rational reasons. I'm not sure I follow you there. Could you recast that? So the Apostle Paul says that theists are rational and responding to the evidence of the, in the world when they come to belief in God. And so they're the rational ones because they're responding to the evidence, and that's why they believe in God. But the atheists are willfully ignoring the evidence for God, and so they're making their worldview decision for non-rational reasons. Whereas all the evidence that you just cited and that I agree with says that all people, theists and atheists alike, most of them are going to make their worldview decision for non-rational reasons. So because the scientific evidence includes saying that theists are going to make their worldview choice non-rationally, that seems to conflict with the thesis that the Apostle Paul okay. is advancing. All right. Yeah, I don't want to be misunderstood as suggesting that all of us make worldview decisions merely because of certain psychological, non-rational factors. I do admit that they're always at play, but I do believe that there is also that evidence there and that it does objectively point in the direction of theism. You know, somebody's right, somebody's wrong here, and it does seem to be Paul's point, is that the evidence is very clear such that... The evidence for the existence of God you're talking about? Yes, Right, that's right. Okay. So that the only way that it could be explained would be in terms of certain non-rational factors, you know, and, and he offers, you know, the suppression of, of the truth by immorality. And I don't think that's inconsistent with recognizing that psychological non-rational factors do impact us all. But I mean, you have someone like Richard Dawkins who's claiming that theists are delusional, but my thesis is Dawkins has it exactly backwards. So let me raise one more objection to this theory that you present in your book, and this one comes from philosopher of religion Stephen Mateson. Mateson points out that the demographic distribution of atheism around the world is such that an explanation of atheism in terms of morality or sin is implausible. For example, 
are we to suppose that swedish people who are most, mostly atheists are in general more sinful than people in italy where they're almost entirely theists or are we to believe that vietnamese people who are almost entirely atheists on the whole are very sinful compared to people in afghanistan or saudi arabia where almost everyone is religious or does it make more sense to explain these clusters of atheism in terms of socio-political and cultural factors. There are diverse causal influences, and the numbers that you see in certain countries are a consequence of all sorts of factors that, in, say, the case of Swedes, would tempt them perhaps more in the direction of atheism or disbelief. But, you know, it's, it's a complex of factors, all of which contribute in conjunction with a person's moral disposition, certain inclinations to go one way or another, and then at last, of course, one has a choice. I do want to ask you if the Bible seems to force you to conclude that all disbelievers everywhere who have ever lived are immoral in a particular way that makes them resist the evidence, and yet you encounter lots of very moral disbelievers in the real world, doesn't your encounter with the moral disbelievers in the real world give you evidence that the Bible might not be right about this? Uh, that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm certainly open to be shown that my interpretation of Scripture is wrong here or there, and I've changed my interpretation on many issues, such as my view on hell, baptism, the atonement, and some other doctrines. But I don't see my view on the authority and trustworthiness of Scripture itself changing because I encounter a lot of very moral atheists. And this is because I believe, based both on experience and Scripture, that all human beings have a deep moral or sin problem. So the more decent, virtuous atheists that I encounter, that would certainly cause me to reconsider this particular interpretation of Scripture. You know, I'm offering a kind of theology of atheism, but that's a far cry from undermining the authority of Scripture itself or the truthfulness of Scripture itself. So I'm certainly fallible in terms of my interpretation of Scripture and on every point. I, I would never make the claim of my infallibility uh, or any mere mortal's infallibility. Um, you mean you don't accept the doctrine of the infallibility of James Spiegel? <laughs> no, you know, a lot of people do, not me. <laughs> I think only my dog does. Oh. Well, are there any final words that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, you know, check out my book. <laughs> Whether you're a theist, atheist, agnostic, uh, whatever your worldview is, I think you find it interesting. I like to think that it extends the discussion, the conversation, and I think conversations like this are healthy for all of us. I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's admirable, and your virtue in doing so <laughs> by itself might be challenging certain aspects of my thesis, so <laughs> I appreciate that, but I really do uh, appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. <laughs>